Well, good to see you this morning. Thanks for, thanks for coming. I just wanted to follow up on, on uh, the, the bit that Clay shared with us this morning about evangelism and taking the gospel to our streets. Um, uh, Clay said something to the effect that I, I, I know that, you know, you know, taking the gospel and evangelizing on the streets isn't for everyone. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That might not be the, the exact ministry that the Lord has called you to. It, it might not be where you're the most comfortable. It might not be where you're the most gifted. But that's the only reason we're here. Were it not for our, 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 our calling to evangelize the world, God might as well just take us to heaven. And I know that, as Clay said, evangelism on the street is not the only kind of evangelism there is. But frankly, evangelism on the street is far easier than evangelizing your friends and your family. It's far easier. Because the people that you encounter and that you get the opportunity to actually share with, if they walk away hostile with you, you don't ever have to see them again. That's just the truth, right? You, you minister to your family, and if you offend your family with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, uh, and then look, uh, we're not trying to offend people, but the gospel does offend people. When you offend people in your family, you still got to be family, unless they just want nothing more to do with you, which sometimes happens. And, uh, and I would just encourage you, please, please mark your calendars for July 1st. We don't know what it's going to look like yet because the city is still trying to put its plans together. But we want to go out. We want to be there. We want to share the gospel with people here in our city. And uh, we used to have, it's been a few years, COVID really impacted this, I think. But we used to have such a good team of people that would go out. Men and women. Women, don't feel like you can't do this. We need women to speak the gospel to women. And uh, so come, share, share in this time. It really is, Clay was absolutely right, it is a blessing every single time. It's usually fearful as we're heading out. It's like, oh, you know, the, do I really have, I'm going to be hated, somebody's going to punch me. It's, I haven't been punched yet, and I push pretty hard. And, but you know what? Every single time I've been out, I leave saying, God, thank you. What an incredible blessing it was to be here. So, mark your calendars. Please do come out. Okay, enough of that. We're going through Matthew's Gospel. Um, we're going to push ahead in that study this morning. If you do have your Bibles, and I do encourage you each Sunday, bring your Bibles. Bring a pen, a highlighter. Mark them up as we go through. Open your Bibles this morning to Matthew in chapter 14 and follow along as we study the Lord's Word. Let's, uh, let's read our passage for today and ask the Lord to bless our time in study. Matthew 14, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. 
And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and, when, and, and they went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a passage in, in which we find much to be saddened by, that a wicked world would uh, so rise up against a child of yours as to put him to death. And yet, Father, this shouldn't surprise us. This is exactly what you've told us in your gospel would happen. Help us to understand this text as we go through. Why was it written for us? What can we gather from it? It seems but a, a historical account. But there's much in here for us to learn. And so teach us this morning by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you recall, uh, last week we saw the rejection of Jesus by the people in his hometown, hard-hearted hearers in Nazareth who would not receive him. Uh, that's using the language of John chapter 1. They, they would not believe. Truth was presented to them. They, they even saw his teaching as being of such wisdom they couldn't explain where in the world did this guy get this wisdom. He's a local boy, homegrown. He's the son of a carpenter. He shouldn't have that kind of wisdom. We shouldn't be taught by this guy, should we? And so it was actually Jesus' wisdom demonstrated in his teaching, along with, of course, his miracles that he worked, that was the very reason they rejected him. We often think it's ignorance that leads people to reject that wasn't the case. It was actually their knowledge of him that caused them to reject him. Well, today we see another rejection of Jesus, another demonstration of seed sown on hard-packed ground in the response of Herod Antipas to the person of Jesus. Now, as we read the account here in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 13, we, we might well walk away from this seeing that it's it's, it's more of a rejection of Herod rejecting John the Baptist. But that's not Matthew's purpose in recording it in his gospel account at this point in the narrative. This is, as verse 1 and again in verses 12 and 13 shows, this is really about rejecting Jesus. And of course, over the past few chapters in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the earthly results they can expect to see of following him and, and what one following Jesus could expect as he walks in a ministry of faithfulness to the Lord. Not only 
not only this, but what Jesus himself expects to face as a result of his own life's pursuit walking the path of our Savior. Allow me to refresh our memories uh, on a few statements that Jesus made shortly back in, in Matthew's gospel to his disciples. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22, Jesus said, you will be. I want you to notice he doesn't say might be. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's strong. Matthew 10, verse 24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciples to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, what an example we have as we are taught of the life and the ministry and the death of John the Baptist in our passage today. But remember, this is ultimately about the rejection of Jesus. John's master hated John was. Why? For Jesus' name's sake. Verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. He, Matthew begins this, this passage with the words, at that time. And, and this, is, this is not a specific exact moment that that. that John is, uh, that Matthew is, is, is pointing to here, but really a, a loose chronological framing. But as we consider the events of Matthew's gospel uh, that, that we've seen in, in, in view in recent history as we've made our way through, uh, we, we actually see the time of this that's in question here. John was in prison in, John, in uh, Matthew chapter 11. He was in prison at the hands of Herod. And, uh, and, and here, not far removed in time, uh, we see that John has, in fact, been put to death. The death of John most likely just, had just taken place as, uh, at this point. Uh, this isn't far removed. We do know that John was in prison for almost a year before he was executed, but it's clear in this text that his death is, is very, very recent in, in view here. Herod, we, we need to just pause. We need to take note of this person. Who is he? Herod was a family name. It was used to speak. This name was used, and, and as, we, as we speak of this name, it brings a little confusion because Herod is used of multiple people in the Gospels. First of all, there's Herod the Great. This was, this was the king reigning at the time of Jesus' birth, uh, the, the same who had uh, commanded all of the children in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, to be killed in, order, in an attempt, really, to, to destroy the Messiah before he came of age to threaten the king's rule. 
Herod the Great was the father of at least five sons, two of which Herod had put to death, believing them to be seeking to usurp his power and his throne, along with, of course, one of his wives. Nice guy. The remaining three sons, after the death of Herod the Great, were given portions of his kingdom to rule over. And this is, of course, where the word tetrarch comes from. Uh, in, in a strict literal interpretation, tetrarch means a ruler of a fourth part. But by this time in history, the word had really just come to mean a, a ruler of a smaller portion. We know that Herod's kingdom, because he had three sons, was not divided in four. It was divided in thirds. Um, well, sort of. Um, Herod's kingdom rule was divided into three parts, not three equal parts, however. Uh, there was a part for each remaining son. First of all, there was Herod, uh, 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 Herod Archelaus. He was, the, 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 the rule, he was given the rule of Samaria, Judea, Edumea. And then there was Herod Philip, and he was given the rule of uh, the northern area containing uh, Trachonitis, north of Galilee. And then there was Herod Antipas, who was given the rule of the land in between the two. And, uh, and, and that was, of course, the region of Galilee and the, the region of, of Perea. And, and, of course, we know that John the Baptist ministered in that region. Jesus ministered in, in that region as well. Archelaus was given a larger portion of the rule of his father's kingdom. He, he is often referred to as the Entharch, uh, the Ethnarch, rather, uh, of, of Judea, uh, Samaria, and Edumea. He, he was given the dominant rule of, the, of Herod's kingdom, of his children, uh, the most important portion of the kingdom that Herod the Great had ruled over. Archelaus was a per particularly brutal man in his rule. Eventually, in fact, not long into his rule, in fact, about two years into his rule, um, Archelaus was actually disposed by the Romans in 6 AD. They replaced him in rule over that portion of Herod the Great's kingdom by a Roman governor. And of course, we, we, we see that Roman governor at the time of Jesus' death as we're presented with the man Pontius Pilate. Herod Philip I, Philip the Tetrarch, we don't, we don't hear a whole lot about this guy other than the fact that here in our passage we're told that his brother Antipas took Herodias, Philip's wife, to be his own wife. Now, I want you to just remember that every time you think about your family and how bad your family might be. This family was messed up. Uh, there, was, there was intermarriages all over the place. Uh, in fact, uh, Herodias, uh, Philip's wife, was also Antipas's niece. So not only did he steal his brother's wife, he married his niece. Herod the Tetrarch in, in our passage is Herod Antipas. The same Herod who later judges Jesus and sends him back to Pilate. When that event takes place and, and, and you read it, 
in the gospel accounts, it's important for us to consider what we're taught here in our passage about the character of this man. So I, I, I hope you'll allow me to come back to this a little later this morning. We learn much about this man, Herod Antipas, here in our passage. And, and frankly, none of what we see is flattering. This is a wicked man. Herod ruled from, uh, from two palaces, one in, in Tiberias, uh, the, the other in, in uh, Macarus. We have no record at all of Jesus uh, spending any time in either of those cities. However, history shows us that it is in the city of Macarus that John the Baptist was imprisoned for about a year's time and finally put to death. And so that tells us where our account is taking place. We're told here that as Herod hears about the fame of Jesus, which had come to his ears, he tells his, sermon, uh, his servants that, that this is John the Baptist resurrected. And he, he uses that logic to explain how it is that Jesus is working by these miraculous powers. Now, John the Baptist, as far as we know, never performed any miracles. So, I'm not sure what exactly it is that causes him to believe this is John, um, and, and that, that John resurrected would have miraculous powers, but this is Herod's thinking here. Verses 3 through 12 give us really a flashback in time, very recent time. It gives us a flashback in history so that we understand how is this possible, because the last we heard just a few chapters ago, which is not far removed in time, uh, John was still alive. He was in prison. And so, how is it that he's dead? Well, Matthew tells us. Verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. A few things we see here regarding the character, first of all, of John the Baptist. And uh, as, as we compare somewhat today the character of, of God's man to the character of the wicked. And so, John the Baptist's character versus the character of Herod. First of all, Herod takes his brother's wife to be his own. He takes his niece, to be his own wife. Now, it was not lawful by either of those for Herod to take her to be his wife. Now, of course, Herod's not terribly concerned about keeping the law. He's, he's not in the least a moral man. But the other thing we see here about Herod's character is that he was a coward. He was a fearful man. He feared the people. He, he didn't fear God. Notice that. But he did fear the people. And the people did hold to the law. They held the law in, in extreme high regard. Now, we, we know they, they got that wrong in how they did that. But regardless, they held the law in high regard. And we know from the gospel accounts that the people were very legalistic. Uh, not, not just in a personal sense, but also in a national sense. 
Um, we, we see things throughout the Gospels, not only, not only things of, uh, well, actually we don't see a whole lot of personal repentance on the part of the Jews in the Gospel. We, we do see some in, in those who do come to Christ, but we, what we do see is a lot of finger pointing, right? We, we see things like, like trying to stone people who are in the Jews' minds outside of the law of the will of God in, uh, uh, as demonstrated in his law. And so these people would, would not only hold to a, a strict wooden interpretation of the law and seek, uh, seek out these, these uh, to put into practice personally, and they did that. Now, they got that a little wrong, but they did that. But they would also carry out the punishments prescribed for violating the law in their society. So, Herod here being called out on his sin by John the Baptist, this is a dangerous place for him to be. The people saw that John was a prophet. And we know this from many passages. In fact, we're introduced to this idea at one point where the Pharisees are actually challenged by the Lord Jesus himself over John's baptism. And where is it that that baptism comes from? And the Pharisees as well, they feared the people. And we're told that because of their fear of the people and that the people perceived John to be a prophet, they they dared not go against the will of the people and remain silent and didn't answer that question. So here, in our passage, is much the same. Herod has a problem. He doesn't want to submit to John's teaching. Uh, he, he found John to be interesting, fascinating. John perplexed him, but he didn't submit to the fact that John was a prophet. First of all, Herod doesn't like to be called out on his sin. I mean, after all, who does? Second, if the people take to heart John's declaration of Herod's sin, they could actually be moved to rise up against Herod and put him to death for that sin. And so, John needs to be silenced. If, if Herod kills John, well, that could be even worse in the people's response. Now, not only has John violated the law in taking his brother's wife, but he's even more violated God by putting God's prophet to death. And so, he's in a dilemma. Verse 5 says, Herod wanted to put him to death, and some have really challenged this and, and said, well, well, wait a minute, time out. The Bible is here untrustworthy. Because in Mark's gospel, in, in, in that gospel, Mark actually gives a more detailed uh, exposition of this event. And, uh, well, Mark says something else. Uh, allow me to read from Mark chapter 6. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod 
who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And so, according to Mark's gospel, it is actually Herodias, not Herod, who wants John to be put to death. Because, and, and, and Herod is resistant to do that because Herod, number one, feared John. Number two, he was perplexed. In fact, he even desired to hear from John. Number three, of course, he feared the people. And so Herodias, wanting to kill John, could not realize her desire. Now, how do we reconcile these two events, these two accounts in in Mark and Matthew's gospel? Well, frankly, I don't think it's all that difficult. Mark is telling a general story of John's imprisonment and his death, while Matthew's purpose is to give us a flashback of the death itself. Mark is building up to and, and then revealing. Matthew is simply telling us how. How did it take place? It's easy for us to imagine that John comes on the scene here. There hasn't been a prophet in the land of Israel for some 400 years. Herod is intrigued, perplexed. He wants to hear him, even believing him to be, as Mark says, a righteous and holy man. And so even while holding him in prison, Herod is keeping him safe. In fact, it seems as if even while in prison... Herod himself would find occasion to go and hear John. This probably accounts for a growing hostility in in Herod's thinking as John continues to call him out on his sin. And Herod grows also to desire to put John to death. But the people, how could he kill the prophet when the people held him in such high esteem? And, of course, Herod feared the people. We see not only was Herod a wicked man doing what was not lawful, he was a vile sinner who saw himself as being above God's law. But he was also a coward. John, on the other hand, he's the very antithesis of Herod. John is is bold. He's... He's courageous. He stands upon God's word, come what may. John calls for repentance of the people, and he calls for repentance of the king. Do you notice? It doesn't matter who John's audience is. His message is the same. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Cast off your sins. Get right with God. Now, I want to be careful here in, in even using the word king to refer to Herod, because technically he was never given that title. He did request it uh, of Rome, but the, fa- his, his, the Herod family protested the idea to Caesar, and Herod Antipas was actually disposed from his rule in 39 AD. And, and he lived out the remainder of his days actually as a pauper, 
But Herod at this time did rule the territory given him nonetheless. John had no problem calling to sin to be sin, no matter who it was he was confronting. And that's good for us to remember. Uh, John was indeed a righteous and holy man. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea of that. John was a sinner, just like you and me. But he was a man that trusted in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He trusted in the Christ that he was to actually announce his arrival, the Christ who was to go to the cross of Calvary and pay for the sins of his people. And so we have quite the contrast of character here as we consider these two men. Verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. We see more of the wickedness of this man in our passage here. Herodias had a daughter. Uh, We know her name to be Salome. She was the offspring of Philip, Herod's half-brother. It's not specifically stated here, but it is quite clear in the context and the flow of this passage that this daughter was was uh, behaving very sensually. And the word doesn't specifically carry this meaning, but the context certainly does. She danced. And the idea here is that She danced before Herod and his guests in a provocative, enticing, sensual way. It doesn't specifically say it, but it it sure seems as if her mother, Herodias, knew that she pleased Herod and that even the dance itself was prompted by her mother in order to gain Herod's favor. This is clearly a public performance before Herod and his drunken company. And we're told that it pleased him. Mark chapter 6, verse 21, we see this from Mark's perspective. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. That's important. This is who, who's in the crowd. Herod is, is concerned about what these people think. These are important people to his rule. Continuing on, For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom." It pleased Herod so, and Mark is emphatic here, even repeating it. It pleased Herod so much that he promised to her in an oath, anything, half my kingdom, go ahead and ask, it's yours. He was so out of his senses and pleased. 
The, the interesting thing for us to consider here is the inappropriateness of all of this. Herod is a king, loosely again using that term. His wife's daughter, and so that's the princess. And the princess is here dancing provocatively for the king's pleasure and for that of the men who are his birthday party guests. That's no place for a princess to be acting as such. No, that's, that's where you would find a slave girl dancing, but not a princess. And so, again here, we see there's, there's an interesting underlying motive here. This is not accidental. This is intentional positioning, knowing Herod's proclivity toward this girl. To gain his favor, to earn from him the right to ask what they want. Salome danced for them. Leon Morris says this, The dance pleased Herod, and for this reason he made an extravagant promise and made it sure by swearing an oath. It, does not, it is not clear why he used an oath. It certainly was not necessary in such a situation. His promise was far-reaching. He said he would give her whatever she asked. The scarce, scarcely sober ruler was in earnest about expressing his appreciation of the dancing. And so Salome danced for them. And it worked. The trap was set, and now Herod is caught. The girl now, seeking the counsel of the wicked, I, I just want you to want you to consider Psalm chapter 1, right? Don't seek the counsel of the wicked. But that's exactly what she did. She consults her mother. There are so many people that are wicked recorded for us in the Scriptures. I can only think of one, really, one woman in the Scriptures who, who even rivals Herodias here, and that's Jezebel. This is a wicked woman. And Salome seeks her mother's counsel to determine here, what should I ask for? I mean, half the kingdom. That's how much you can have right now for the asking. Matthew says she was prompted by her mother. She, she made her request known. Mark chapter 6, verse 24 says this, And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Salome is, is not a child. She's old enough to be so provocative Certainly, she's old enough to make a determination on her own as to what she should ask for. And so again, I believe we see an intentionality here, a scheming here on the part of both her and her mother. I think we also see here their knowledge of Herod. They know this man's character. They know that in his current state, he is primed to falling for the dancing of Salome, and in his stupor, 
He is primed to give in to any request she would make. They know that Herod is a man who vacillates. And so they act as quickly as possible to remove that possibility. And they ask for John's head. They ask not only that his head be given, but right now, right here, right in the presence of your guests, do it. They don't want to give him any opportunity to leave the party and then change his mind. No, they actually use his own guests against him. Fulfill your promise publicly just as you made the oath publicly. Not later, not sometime, right now, here, in this company. Honor your oath. Give it now. Salome and her mother devise this plan and and they trap Herod by his own wickedness and he has no recourse but to give what he promised lest he damage his reputation before these these people of great importance to his rule. And so he delivers. In verse 9, And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And the king was sorry. Mark says, and the king was exceedingly sorry. And here we see a truth that's important for us to consider. And frankly, Clay mentioned this this morning as he talked about his conversation with a man just this past week. And as Clay said, he was convicted. All men have a conscience. All men. That conscience can be seared, it can be hardened, but all men, even as wicked as Herod, have a conscience. J.C. Ryle writes this, and I, I love this. He says, There is a conscience in all men by nature. Let this never be forgotten. Fallen, lost, desperately wicked, as we are all born into this world, God has taken care to leave Himself a witness in our bosoms. It is a poor, blind guide without the Holy Ghost. It can save no one. It leads no one to Christ. It may be seared and trampled underfoot, but there is such a thing as a conscience in every man, accusing or excusing him, and Scripture and experience alike declare it. Conscience can make even kings miserable when they have willfully rejected its advice. It can fill the princes of this world with fear and trembling as it did Felix when, he, when Paul preached. They find it easier to imprison and behead the preacher than to bind his sermon and silence the voice of his reproof in their own hearts. God's witnesses may be put out of the way, but their testimony often lives and works on long after they are dead. God's prophets live not forever, but their words often survive them. You know that's true for us. As we go out and we preach the gospel, as we encounter people and tell them about you know, God's word, God's law, 
God's provision of a Savior. That man that Clay spoke with, Clay's no longer sitting with him. That word spoken to him is still resonating in his heart. God will still use that, and he will accomplish his purposes. We have to remember, every man has a conscience. That conscience is part of the tool God has given us to preach the gospel to them. John's words, John's office, as a servant of the Most High, bring great conviction here to Herod's heart. And so, let us remember that when we're preaching. God is placing in all men a conscience. It's a tool for our evangelism. We use men's conscience against them as we preach the law of the Lord. And the fact that by that law, all men stand condemned and in need of a Savior outside of themselves to save them from what they themselves are, lawbreakers, violators against God Himself and and rightly to be condemned unless God is merciful. We, We do not ever preach law to save, but law does confirm the need to be saved. In fact, nothing but law confirms the need to be saved. And until a man's conscience bears witness to this fact, he doesn't need a Savior. And he will never call upon the name of the Lord. And so we preach law and gospel. They are not the same thing, but they always go together. Law lays the pitch black backdrop And once that is established before a man's eyes, the glory and the splendor of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in the accomplished righteousness and substitute payment of our Savior shines with a blinding splendor. And then, and only then, do we see the truth that Jesus has just finished teaching in Matthew chapter 13 of the kingdom like the treasure in the field worth selling everything to acquire. Like the pearl of great price, we must lay our hands on it no matter what the cost. Only then do we see this gospel, this kingdom in that light. One old preacher said, a wicked man needs no other tormentor especially for sins of blood, than his own heart. Yes, every man has a conscience. And I dare say that all men feel the weight of that conscience. And for some, they've simply grown so accustomed to ignoring it that it bothers them no more in their wickedness. But all men have it, and it is to be used in God's design to bring men to Christ. Verse 12 says, And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Um, Let's come back to the beginning a little bit here. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. It's interesting for us to think that Herod's palace in Tiberias is, well, it's within walking distance of Capernaum and Cana, 
and, and Nazareth. It's not that far away. And Jesus has been ministering in those cities for well over a year at this point. Yet it's taken this long for Herod to hear of the fame of Jesus and his miraculous works. It certainly appears in our text that it is at this very time, shortly, almost immediately after the death of John the Baptist, is when Herod initially hears of Jesus' mighty deeds. And it's it's, it's partly the timing of his hearing that results in the conclusions that he makes. Herod was, and, and that's interesting for, our, for us to consider because this isn't a conclusion that, that he takes lightly. Part of the problem is that Herod is actually a Sadducee. Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. So how is it that Herod now suddenly believes in a resurrection? Something magnificent has, has penetrated his, his thinking. I don't want to say his heart because obviously he doesn't believe, but his thinking at the very least. Something in John startled Herod into the idea that there actually was going to be a reckoning in, in, in the afterlife, a, a life to come and a payment for sin, and, and in particular here, the sins that Herod himself had committed. And so, hearing of Jesus, hearing of his miraculous powers at work, according to the providence of the Lord, it is at this very time, immediately after John's death, that the reports of Jesus come to Herod and his assumption is that Jesus is John come back to life, and this is why he has these miraculous powers. And so, if we consider John's thinking, this would have been a startling thought for him. And Matthew places this record of John's death right here in his gospel for a purpose. It's not really about John. Yes, there's a historical account of John's death, but it's really about the rejection of Jesus. Herod rejected Jesus' forerunner, John. And, and as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, to reject those that Jesus sends is to reject Jesus himself. And, uh, but in the telling of this, this, Matthew here shows us that in Herod's assumption that Jesus is John's, John resurrected, as Herod rejected John, so now Herod rejects Jesus. As he hears of Jesus, he also rejects him. This is, that's, that's Matthew's point here in recording this for us. You, you notice there is in this flashback, it tells us how John was rejected, but that's in the past. The point is now, what happens here at this point? Herod hears of Jesus. He hears of his power. He assumes some things about him. Yet, he clings to his unbelief. That's all it tells us. And then in verse 13, we see Jesus withdraws at that point. And we've seen this repeatedly in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew 12, Jesus healed the man with the withered hand. He is willfully rejected by the Pharisees who then conspire to destroy him. And so what happens? He withdraws. He pulls back. 
In Matthew 13, Jesus is telling the parables to the crowd who reject him. What, what happens? He withdraws alone with his disciples. Here in chapter 14, we simply see another example of that withdrawal at being rejected. It's interesting, however, how God uses this in the Holy Spirit's recording of the events of Jesus' ministry for us. Consider Herod's interest in Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, in, in retelling exactly the same thing here, Luke records the, this, this uh, hearing of Jesus by Herod, and we're told that as Herod hears of Jesus' power, he actually desires to see him. Jump with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. As Jesus has been tried by the Jews and handed over to Pontius Pilate, and then Pilate, hearing that Jesus is a Galilean, sends him to Herod. Listen to what Luke records. Luke 23, verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction... He sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Herod here, he gets this opportunity that he's, he's long desired to see Jesus for himself. He's heard of Jesus' power, which frankly frightened him, thinking that John has come back from the dead, and I killed John. This might not be good. He wanted to see Jesus' power for himself. If this is John, think about this. What would Herod expect to hear from him? I think he would expect to hear a continued rebuke in that same boldness of the prophet that he had once done. Jesus is brought before him here, and he works no miracles. He offers not even a word, and Herod mocks him. Herod is unimpressed with him, and he sends him back to Pilate, without charge, finding nothing to condemn the man Jesus for. In, in, in Herod's mind, this, this must have been somewhat comforting here. I mean, if it had been John raised from the dead with that kind of power, imagine how that could have gone. But instead, what he saw was a meek and mild, unimpressive man to be ridiculed and mocked. That's how Herod saw Jesus when he was standing before him. And so we see, once again, Herod rejects Jesus. Now, John the Baptist was the first Christian martyr. He was the first witness for Jesus to be put to death for his witness. 
and hearing of John's death, we, we can be certain that Jesus used the opportunity to further teach His disciples to trust the Father and to walk with Him no matter what the earthly consequences might be. You recall Jesus' teaching of His disciples about their mission in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10:38. And whatever, uh, sorry, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, John feared no man. Uh, The reason? Because he feared God. He had a right fear, a healthy fear, a proper fear of God. The one who could not only kill the body, but, but also cast the soul into everlasting hell. John knew that this God who had the power over not only life and death, but but even over all of eternity, was above all to be feared. And, And that fear of the Lord held John fast to trusting that only God could save a man from facing God's judgment and eternal condemnation. And so, no matter what it was that John faced, He trusted the Lord and he witnessed to the truth of his God to a world around him. No matter the audience, he was a bold man. Even when face to face with Herod, who had the power to imprison and even kill him, his faith gave gave rise to courage and a courage that's out of this world. That courage moved John to speak truth, even calling this earthly king before him to repent and turn to God, knowing it could well cost him his life. And you know what he saw? He saw that his life was a cost worthy of paying to walk in faithfulness to his Lord. His life was worth offering if only he could walk in faithfulness. And now we, we know where John is, don't we? Right? Jesus said, the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. We know where John is. Consider in Matthew chapter 11, these words from the mouth of our Lord. Among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
You know, with the youth the other night, we were talking about this idea of commendation. What does it mean to be commended? Well done. Right? Good job. Way to go. Can you imagine a higher commendation than hearing Jesus Christ say of you, of those born of women, there's never been one greater? Wow. We know where John is, don't we? That's some pretty high commendation. John lost his earthly life for Jesus' name's sake. He is eternally received in a glorious life also for Jesus' name's sake. What about Herod? Herod rejected John. He rejected Jesus, thinking him to be John. And and before uh, before Jesus' crucifixion, as Jesus is brought before him, he once again rejects Jesus. This wicked man willfully held to his unbelief. His heart was far, far too hard to receive the seed and produce a harvest. What does his end look like in contrast to John? Well, it's fitting that we, we see his end recorded for us in Scripture. Acts chapter 12 and verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, right then. I love that, that, that Luke records that word. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Isn't that good? I love that last statement. Herod's life in all of his efforts could not stop the witness of the Word of God from being proclaimed. Not when he killed John. Not when he mocked Jesus. Not even when he threatened and and killed the apostles. He killed James. He tried to kill Peter. But the Word of the Lord increased and multiplied. Herod and all of his power could do absolutely nothing to hinder the purposes of the Lord. Herod's eternal condition is not at all like John's. No, his eternal condition in his unbelief finally aroused the wrath of God which began to be poured out on him even before departing from this world, struck down on his throne by the angel of the Lord and eaten by worms in the viewing of these who wrongly offered him worship. Right here on this earth it began that he was eaten by worms and in hell where the worm never dies. Imagine that. 
That's Herod's current and forever position. As we study the unbelief of Herod, it should, it should awaken the fear of the Lord within us. Let no one in this room hold to a heart of unbelief. Rejection of the Lord will result in that same condemnation that Herod faced and the same hell awaits every single unbelieving soul. God has given His standard. Only a perfect man can stand as God's law is executed. None of us fit that description and therefore all of us, all we could ever expect from God is His wrath poured out on us as He repays us for our sins. But God in His mercy has given His Son that whoever who believes on Him, whoever trusts in His provision of a perfect life for us and His perfect death in our place, whoever would call upon His name, trusting in Him, believing in Him to save us from that judgment, all the believing ones will be saved. Don't be a Herod. Don't hold to unbelief. If that's you this morning, I plead with you. Give up your unbelief. Trust in Christ. Run to Him as the only one who can save you from what you have earned, from what you deserve, God's wrath. Don't be a Herod. Bend the knee now. One day, as Philippians chapter 2 tells us, every knee will bow, including yours. Every knee. And every heart is going to confess, every tongue is going to say the words, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. We have the distinct privilege of being able to bend that knee and confess with our tongue right now, Jesus Christ is Lord. I give my life to Him. I surrender to Him right here, right now. I trust that He and He alone can save me from what I rightly deserve. And so be one who trusts in and witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Be a John, not a Herod. Father, we're thankful for this text. We're thankful for displaying for us the character of these two men. The, the, the character of the one who, who trusts in you, who, who rightly fears you, who walks in that fear in, in his manner of life, trusting that it's only the Messiah who can save. And thank you for the description of the wicked, the, the unbelieving, who rejects you. And Father, for making that that, that contrast so clear for us. Father, cause every single one in this room today to cast off any unbelief that we have and to trust in Christ, realizing that's the only place salvation can be found. Father, we pray that You save men even here this morning for the glory of Your name's sake, that it might be said, how merciful is our God.
how compassionate and, and, and gracious is our God that he would save sinners like us. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.